man blind from birth? And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus had made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they again said to the man blind, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know, but one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does God's will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. 
Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. In John chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, and how he had, had spit in the dirt and made mud out of the, out of the spit and, and rubbed it on the man's eyes. And then he told the man to go and to wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man did so, and he received his sight. Now, there was nothing magical about the mud, and there was not even anything magical about Jesus' saliva. There wasn't anything special about the waters of the pool of Siloam. But as we've seen again and again, Jesus didn't do anything by accident. He had a reason for every aspect of this miracle. Everything that Jesus did was intentional. By choosing out this particular man, he was revealing the love and the wisdom and the sovereignty of God by healing this man who had been blind from birth. He also did so to reveal that he really is the Messiah by fulfilling Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, the prison from those who sit in darkness. By mixing together clay and dirt and spit on the Sabbath, he was knowingly drawing himself into direct conflict with the Pharisees and their man-made laws. He was challenging the Mishnah, which declared that it is a sin to make mud on the Sabbath, or even a sin to heal someone on the Sabbath. By sending the man to go and wash in the pool of Siloam, Jesus was drawing a, a link with the Feast of Tabernacles and showing God's provision for his people and the eschatological fulfillment at the end of time. But as we'll see today, it wasn't just the man's physical eyes that were opened. His spiritual eyes were open too. But even as this man's spiritual eyes were opened, the eyes of many of the Jews would be revealed to be blind. Okay, so, so this man was, was born blind, and then Jesus healed him. We, we read about these things in Scripture, and we, we seldom take a chance, or seldom take the time to think through what actually happened here. This had never been done before. No one to that point had ever been healed who had been born blind. Now, in, in this culture today, we don't, we don't see that sort of thing going on. We, certainly, we can read about surgeons who go to, to third world countries and perform operations to heal cataracts, but nobody is putting mud on people's eyes and telling them to go and wash and then they're made clean. This sort of thing doesn't happen every day. But even something as amazing as this, as something glorious as the Lord revealing, or re opening somebody's eyes, even something as glorious as this produces all kinds of different responses. 
given access to the same information, people will respond in all kinds of different ways. You see this sort of thing in, in a, a court of law when, when a crime is committed and you could call forward several, several different witnesses who have all seen the same thing and they can have completely different testimonies of what happened. Take the issue of origins, for example, how the world began. Given the same evidence, people will respond based on what they already believe. They will respond based on their presuppositions. So if you take a look at the fossil record, some people will, some people will conclude that, that animals evolved over billions of years through blind chance. Others will, will see the complexity of living things and conclude that it couldn't just have happened by chance, that aliens somehow must have, have planted seeds of life on the earth. Or others will see the complexity and believe that God used evolution in order to create the world. But a select few will glorify God, believing Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that over the next literal six days, God created the world. So, so how, can, how can people respond in such different ways to the same set of evidence? They draw such different conclusions. It's again because people respond according to their presuppositions. And people's presuppositions are grounded in their fallen nature. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of faith. And some faith is more blind than others. It takes far more faith to believe that blind chance resulted in something as complex as a human eye let alone a human brain, than to believe that God actually did it. It takes far more faith to believe that aliens did it, even though there is no evidence for aliens anywhere. Besides, if you're going to, to believe in aliens, who created the aliens? It takes far more faith to believe that God used evolution when even atheist scientists acknowledge that there is no evidence of transitional fossils in the fossil record. Fossils appear fully formed. There's nothing that's, that's partially a reptile or partially a bird. The evidence for God's work in creation is abundant, but people deny it. Romans, Romans 20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So why don't people believe what the Bible says? It's because they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1.18. It's willful blindness. They refuse to see the truth. They refuse to see the truth because of the hardness of their hearts. And no amount of evidence can convince them that the Bible is true unless the Lord changes their hearts. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. People can't see what God is doing because they are blind. 
And the same is true in this incident that we're looking at this morning. People are presented with the evidence, but they all respond differently. In verses 8 to 13, we'll see the response of the neighbors. In verses 14 to 17, we will see the initial response of the Pharisees and the man. In verses 19 to 23, we'll see the response of his parents. In verses 24 to 34, we'll see the response, the second response of the Pharisees and the man. And then finally, in verses 35 to 41, we'll see the response of Jesus and the final response of the Pharisees and the final response of the man. So first of all, we see the response of the neighbors, verses 8 to 13. The neighbors are the first ones whose response we see. You can imagine there's the stir. They had known this man. They, they knew that he was blind. They'd seen him grow up. But they've never seen anything like this before. It challenged their thinking about the way that things worked. People who were born blind didn't receive their sight. It, it challenged their presuppositions. So they, they thought there must be some mistake. They thought, isn't, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it is he. And others said, no, he just looks like him. They will more readily believe that it was an imposter than that a miracle had actually taken place. And this is... you could. People had heard about what Jesus was doing. He was famous. All kinds of miracles had been performed, but they still refused to believe. You know, I've lived in this neighborhood for only two years, but people know who I am. If somebody came up and said, said I'm John Tucker, it would be, it would be plainly obvious that's not me. Imagine if, if I had grown up in this neighborhood that much more. So the man kept saying, I am the man. He's saying, uh, guys, hello, it's me. I was blind, but now I can see. They finally concede that it's really him, so they ask him, then how were your eyes opened? So he simply explained to them what happened. The man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, go wash in Siloam. And I, so I went and washed, and I received my sight. So they asked him where Jesus was, and he told them that he didn't know. Not sure of what to make of all this, they took the man to see the Pharisees. Now, we don't need to, to presuppose that there's something sinister in what they're doing here. They just did what people in that day would have done. when They had, they had a question, and so they, they would have gone to the religious leaders. I think if it was, it was our day and age, we'd probably, they'd probably take the man to a doctor to get him checked out. And then maybe they would call the, the news media. So here they, they take the man before the Pharisees. And then in verses 14 to 17, we see their initial response as well as the initial response of the man before them. But before describing what takes place at the meeting, Jesus, John gives us information in verse 14, that if you've been reading sequentially through this gospel account, will already tell you what the Pharisees are going to think. They're not going to be very happy. John tells us that Jesus had made mud to heal the man on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees asked the man how he had received his sight, and so the man tells the story again. 
But notice that there's a little less detail here. Maybe he's starting to get annoyed with people's attitudes towards the whole thing. He simply says, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. And so some of the Pharisees concluded, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And others asked, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? So there's division in the ranks. We've seen this throughout the last several chapters, how when Jesus comes, he's going to create division. There's going to be some that are going to bow and worship him, and there's going to be some that are going to rebel against him and reject him. And so even within the Pharisees, there's some division. We've seen hints of that with earlier with, with Nicodemus. So, so maybe Nicodemus might have even been one of those who was actually saying that this man can't be a sinner. Well, we don't really know who was involved, but at least at this point, there's division. So we need to ask the question then, does Jesus really break the Sabbath? We spoke about this last week. Jesus doesn't break the Sabbath. He never breaks the Sabbath. Jesus fully obeyed the Sabbath. That's the only way that his righteousness can be credited to our account. But we, what Jesus does do is he does break the Mishnah, the system of rules and regulations that were governing the behavior of the Jews. They, they went far beyond what the Bible really taught. We've, we've seen this before. The Mishnah had 39 different rules for what you can't do on the Sabbath. And many Jews today still adhere to its regulations. If you go to Israel or to parts of, of the U.S. or Canada where there's a big Jewish population, they have what's known as Sabbath elevators. And Jews are, are not able to, to push an electric button because they view that as kindling a fire which the scripture says you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath. So these, these, they can't push a button, so these elevators stop at every single floor. And you see, the, the, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous, the system of man-made rules that goes way beyond what scripture teaches and completely undermines what the Sabbath is for. It's a, it's a day for rest. It's a day for worship. It's a day to do works of mercy. And so Jesus broke the Mishnah rule that you couldn't make mud out of spit on the Sabbath. You couldn't even spit in the mud. Spitting on rocks was okay, but spitting in the dirt made clay, and clay was used to make bricks, so it constituted work. Now again, we talked about this last week, but did Jesus have to use mud to heal this man? Of course not. Did he have to heal him on the Sabbath? No, he could have chosen any day to do it, but he did it to prove a point. He was demonstrating that the Pharisees and their unbiblical rules were wrong. They were binding people's consciences to something that the Bible didn't teach. And they were robbing people of the joy of serving the Lord. Now here with, with John chapter 9, there's an important parallel with John chapter 5. You remember that's where Jesus healed the man who had been a, a paralytic for 38 years. And he did that one on the Sabbath as well. And then he commanded the man to take up his bed and walk. And this also 
contradicted another law of the Mishnah. The Mishnah declared that it was unlawful to transport an object between a private domain and the public domain or for a distance of four cubits within the public domain. Now, where did they get these arbitrary numbers? The scripture doesn't teach this sort of thing anywhere. They had added to the word of God. So Jesus was drawing himself into direct conflict, not only with the Pharisees and their laws, but also with the Pharisees themselves. In John 5.18, we find out that he wanted, they wanted to kill him for breaking the Sabbath. And their hatred is going to continue to grow. They're going to repeatedly try to stone him. But they're finally going to hand him over to the Romans just a few months later. So in verse 17, they asked the man who had been blind, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? They were forcing the man to take sides. And unlike the man who had been crippled in John chapter 5, who ratted Jesus out before the Pharisees, and unlike the Pharisees themselves, this man who had been blind declared, he is a prophet. He is a prophet. Now, his physical eyes may have been opened, but spiritually, even though he was beginning to see, things were still a little bit foggy. Because Jesus is indeed a prophet. But as this man will find out, Jesus is also immeasurably more. In verses 18 to 23, we see the response of his parents. So now the Jews were cornered. If Jesus was a sinner... He couldn't perform miracles. Nevertheless, here the man was claiming to have been healed. So in order to protect their false system of beliefs, the only resort that they had was to, was to deny the miracle itself. So they drew the conclusion that the man hadn't really been blind. So what did they do? It's a logical thing. They called the man's parents and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And so they answered, we know that this is our son, that he was born blind, but how he now sees, or we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. They're willing to admit that this really was their son. They're willing, they're willing to admit that he really was born blind, but they're not willing to go any further. As for the facts about the healing, they passed the, the buck. You see what they're doing here? They're actually cornering their own son. They say, ask him. He's an adult. He'll tell you. Now, it's highly doubtful, highly doubtful that they didn't really know that it was Jesus. Seems that he was back in his own neighborhood because his neighbors had, had known his neighbors, he had had an encounter with, with his neighbors. It's very likely that his parents did know that it was Jesus. But either way, either way, the response is sinful. Why wouldn't they talk? John tells us in verses 22 and 23, it was out of fear. The Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the anointed one of God, he would be put out of the synagogue. The man's parents were afraid to be kicked out. 
Now, the church is commanded in Scripture to practice church discipline in hopes that a sinner will come to repentance and confess the Lord with words and actions. But the motivation for the Pharisees is the exact opposite. Even though on the surface they confessed God, they actually hated God, and the response to the Son proved it. Now, for the parents, the thought of being kicked out of the synagogue was an understandable fear. It would mean spiritual exclusion. They would be considered by the Pharisees and by the community and probably by themselves to be unsaved. It would also mean social ostracism. They would be shunned by those around them. It would also mean economic isolation. For a family who was so poor that their son had to resort to begging, this would make life even tougher. But now, parents, I want you to think about this. Imagine that you had a child who was born blind or a child who had some other serious infirmity. Now imagine that somebody came along and healed your child. How thankful would you be? You would be willing to do almost anything for that person. But like the Pharisees, their hearts were hard. Think of, of the ten lepers that Jesus had healed. Nine out of ten walked away, didn't give him another thought. Only one came back and said, thank you. So, but by the grace of God, if we were in that predicament, we would respond the same way. We would also respond in fear of man. And how many of us in, in our workplace, either by, by going along with, with something that we know to be wrong, whether it's, it's somebody doing something dishonest or somebody telling uh, an inappropriate story, and we, we laugh along as though it's okay. Or whether, whether we're in a situation where we know that we have an opportunity to proclaim Christ, who didn't just heal our blindness, he saved us. But we deny him with our words or our actions. Fear is a very strong motivator. In John 12, 42, some of the Pharisees themselves were afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue, so they didn't confess Jesus either. But as difficult as it would be to be cut off from the synagogue, how much worse, how much worse to be cut off from God. Fear of man might be a strong fear. But the best cure for the fear of man is cultivating the fear of the Lord. The Western church culture says that we shouldn't fear God. But what does God's word say? What does the Bible say? Turn please to Matthew chapter 10. Verse 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
Beloved, no one can do anything to us apart from God's will. Nothing is beyond God's sovereign control. No, he is not the author of sin. But God is in control, and nobody can touch us unless God allows it. So even as, as we see, as we, Jane and I living here in this, in this neighborhood, and, and, and Tyler and, and Agnes and Alice living here in this neighborhood, and there's, there's crime going on on the street right in front of us. Where does, our, where does our confidence lie? It doesn't lie ultimately in alarm systems. It doesn't ultimately lie in, in being able to take up arms to protect ourselves. It doesn't ultimately rely even in the police. Our confidence lies in the Lord because nothing can happen to us apart from God's sovereign will. Jesus says here in Matthew 10 that not even a sparrow can fall to the ground apart from his will. Not even a hair can fall to the not even a hair of our head can fall to the ground apart from his will. God loves his children so much that he sent his only son to die for our sins. So what reason do we have to fear man? Jesus says in verses 32 and 33 Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge by my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now we don't know what eventually happened to this man's parents, but at least at this point, they're showing themselves to be rebels against God. They're showing themselves to be haters of God, just like the Pharisees. In verses 24 to 34, we see the second response of the Pharisees and the next response of the man. In verse 24, they, they call the man before them again and they say, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. This has to be one of the most ironic statements ever made. They're saying, Give glory to God, and then they blaspheme God in the next sentence. They know that Jesus is a sinner? Seriously? In Jesus' indictment against the Jews in John 8, 46, he asked, which of you convicts me of sin? Which of you convicts me of sin? They had nothing to say to him now, and they had no charge that they could bring then, and they had no charge that they could bring against him now. They have no basis for drawing that verdict. And the man answers, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. He's showing more theological prowess than the Pharisees. He knows that he does not have the authority to judge Jesus as a sinner. But he also knows that once he couldn't see, and now he can. And you can, you can feel the, the heat in the room go up a few degrees as the Pharisees respond. The questions come faster now. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? They're going in circles. 
and the man is growing impatient. So he answers sarcastically, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? He's being sarcastic here. And for the Pharisees, this is, this is a spit in the face. But things get even hotter. The Pharisees weren't used to this sort of insubordination. And so they revile the man. They say, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. It was the worst thing that they could think to say to him. Again, they're like children arguing in the playground. Yeah, yeah. It's foolishness. But again, the man digs in his heels. He said, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not born, sorry, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So echoing the reasoning of the Pharisees themselves from 9.16, the, the man responds with a logic that seems to have evaded the Pharisees. God doesn't listen to sinners. God listens to those who obey him and those who worship him. Therefore, because God listened to Jesus by healing me, Jesus must be from God. Now, we do need to be very careful in drawing a, a direct correlation between somebody who performs signs and miracles and being a righteous person. So think of the, of the magicians in Egypt and the things that it, 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 it boggles my mind, but you think about the things that the Egyptians in Egypt were able to perform, the signs and miracles that they performed even though they were enemies of God. But Scripture does repeatedly point to the requirement of obedience for answered prayer. When it comes to God answering prayer, obedience is a necessary require, requirement. Psalm 66, verses 18 and 19. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the war, Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has intend, attended to the voice of my prayer. Isaiah 1.15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though when you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And 1 John 3.21 and 22, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And it's going to get really practical here. Peter in 1 John 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So men, the way that we treat our wives can cause God not to hear our prayers. And that convicts me even as I say it. Men, the example that we have in our homes, in the way that we treat our wives, is Christ himself. 
And if we're not striving to do that, you might as well not even pray. Because your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. And wives, the same is true for you in the way that you treat your husband. Once again, this, this man's theology outstrips that of the religious authorities. And the Pharisees are enraged. Now they accuse the man of being born in sin. It's the same line of reasoning that the disciples had used at the beginning of the chapter. If this man had been born blind, he must have been a sinner. So they're thinking, this sinful, uneducated beggar had the audacity to teach us? With nothing left to say, they just threw him out of the synagogue. But even with all the issues we spoke of earlier, even with the, the, the so-called spiritual and social and economic ostracism, this was one of the best things that ever happened to him. If these were the leaders of that synagogue, and this was the position that they were taking about Christ, then the indictment of Revelation 2.9 could easily, could easily be applied to them. They are those who say they are Jews but are not. They are a synagogue of Satan. So this man would leave that fellowship and find a fellowship that is immeasurably, infinitely better. And we'll see this in verses 35 to 41 as we see the response of Jesus and the final response of the man and the final response of the Pharisees. So Jesus found out that the man had been cast out, and then he sought him out and asked him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Remember, this man had never even seen Jesus. Jesus sent him away to the pool of Siloam, still blind. The man didn't receive his vision until he washed. So he didn't know what Jesus looked like. But now seeing, he stands before Jesus. And now Jesus really opened his eyes. Just as his physical eyes weren't opened until he washed at the pool of Siloam, his spiritual eyes weren't opened until he had this encounter with Jesus. So Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. So his spiritual eyes are open, and he says, Lord, I believe, and he worships him. Now, worship is reserved for God himself. This man is bowing before God the Son. And this second miracle is even more powerful than the healing of blindness. This miracle involves taking out his heart of stone and giving him a heart that loves God. It's transforming a sinner into a saint. The physical healing was temporary. The spiritual healing is eternal. Even eyes that are made to see will grow dark in death. But his spiritual eyes will never be closed. 
They'll never be closed. This man eventually died and is gone to be with Jesus. That's our hope. Brothers and sisters, that is our hope. That one day we will leave this life and we will go to be with Jesus forever. And even now, as we see in a glass darkly, then we will see face to face. Then as, as, we, as we will know Jesus, even as he knows us. Think about that first moment when you open your eyes in eternity and see Jesus and you know that it's never, ever, ever going to end. That glorious moment will endure forever. And you will be able to worship God in spirit and in truth in a way that is, is utterly different, utterly free of, of physical infirmities, utterly free of spiritual infirmities, utterly free of temptation for sin, distractions. We will see Jesus as he really is. But even in the midst, even in the midst of this jubilation, Judgment is also present. Jesus had said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so this man's spiritual sight reveals the blindness of the Pharisees. And so Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. So Jesus is revealing what the miracle was ultimately about. As D.A. Carson explains, Jesus' remarks in verse 39 are thus cast as a summarizing statement to the healed man of what has taken place, enabling him to grasp that the miracle that opened his eyes and the ensuing debate with the religious authorities constituted an acted parable about sight and blindness in the spiritual realm. So Jesus, on the one hand, is revealing spiritual sight, but he's also revealing spiritual blindness. Now, for the comments of Jesus saying, for judgment, I come into the world, some people, and some people who are spiritually blind, say that Jesus' comments about coming to bring judgment contradict John 3.17. But if you have spiritual eyes to see, you know that God's word never contradicts itself. Please turn to John 3.17. There on the heels of John 3.16, which is one of the most... Uh, misinterpreted and mis misrepresented and, and quoted out of context verses in the whole Bible in verse 17 Jesus says for God did not send the world send the son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him 
But now we need to consider this in its context. Jesus goes on to say in verses 18 to 21 that Jesus' very presence brings condemnation for those who reject him. And that people don't come to the light because they don't want their evil deeds to be exposed. And that's the case here for these Pharisees. They didn't come to the light because they didn't want their evil deeds to be exposed. If you remember in the incident in, in, John, in the beginning of John chapter 8 with the woman who had caught, been caught in adultery, when Jesus said to them, let he was without sin cast the first stone, what did they do? They all walked away because they knew. They knew that they were sinners. But they didn't want to come to Jesus to find salvation in him. So there in John chapter 9, some of the Pharisees were present for this interaction between Jesus and the man, and they knew that he was talking about them. So they asked, are we also blind? Are we also blind? And now Jesus pronounces judgment on them. If you were blind, you would have no guilt, but that now that you say we see, your guilt remains. He's saying, you claim to be able to see, but your attitude towards me proves that you are blind in unbelief. Look what I've just done. I've just healed a man who was, who was born blind. Look at the evidence. But you can't see the evidence because you are more blind than this man ever was. Beloved, look at the evidence around you. God is at work. God is at work all around you, and, and not just gloriously in creation. God is at work all around you gloriously in the redemption of sinners. You can see for yourself People who once were lovers of sin, people who once were haters of God, but have been transformed in the power of the Holy Spirit and are now haters of sin and lovers of God. It's a miracle. Whenever that happens, whenever God regenerates a dead sinner, Whenever he causes one to be born again, it is a miracle. So how are you responding? How do you respond to what you see God doing all around you? Do you respond like those Pharisees in the blindness of unbelief? Or are you bowing? Are you bowing in worship of the one who has opened your eyes? Let's pray together.